Good morning. How are you? Good. You look good. Well, some of you. Some of you. So I am asked uh, a number of questions, probably because I'm a pastor and a professor, but I'd say the single most question I'm asked all the time is, so what's it like to be a face model? <laughs> all right, they, they don't ask me that. Okay. The second most asked question is, how in the world did you get Nick Cunningham to wear a robe? That's a good question. That's a good question. Actually, the number one question that I'm asked um, is a difficult question. And the question is, why doesn't God do this? Or why doesn't God do that? And fill in the this or the that. Maybe it's, why doesn't God touch my spouse? Why doesn't God heal my son? Why did God allow this person to die in a car wreck? Why are there tsunamis? Why are there famines? Why was there a Holocaust? Why did this happen? And why did God not do anything about it? Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like God was late? Have you ever felt like God was uncooperative? Have you ever felt like God was non-attentive? I don't know about you. If we did a group therapy moment, have you ever felt that? If you have, put your hand up. If you, let's just, come on, come on, come on. Have you ever felt that? It's okay. Keep your hand up. Look around. Look around. There you go. Now they're, look at that. Now they're coming up. You just learned something, didn't you? Because you thought you were the only one. You thought that you were the only one that had that feeling. But I, I would say that it's common for all Christ followers. It's common for all people of faith, of religion, of no religion, of seekers, of people who don't know God or don't believe in God. We're asking the big question of the day, why? Why does God let this stuff happen? What does it appear to be like when God seems to not care? He seems to be late. He seems to be unattentive. Well, I love the text that we're going to talk about this morning because here in this text, there are two sisters who feel that deep concern. I love the Bible for, of its practicality. And in this text in John 11, which people usually use for a funeral service, this is obviously not a funeral service, praise the Lord. This is actually a worship service. And I believe that this text has profound implications and profound insight on what we do when we struggle with that big, big, big question. What do you do when God seems blank? What do you do with that? What is your this this morning? What is your that this morning? And so I'd like us to pray and then I'd like us to dive in. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Uh, give us insight this morning. Give us wisdom Give us discernment. Help us understand this. And most of all, Lord, help us apply it. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said. And I'm not here this morning to deal with the issue of does God exist or not. I'm not talking about that. I'm not trying to prove or disprove the existence of God. What I'm trying to do this morning is to raise the issue of what do we do when God appears silent, when God appears late, when God appears to be doing nothing, and if you've ever been a human long enough, you've felt that. You've been in this scenario, you've been in a situation where you wanted to see something happen. Maybe occasionally you'll even pray about someone who's got an illness, someone who's got cancer. You hear about a story about someone who's been in a car wreck and, and you're praying for them to live and then they die. Or you pray for that dear friend of yours that has terminal cancer, expecting them to live six months, 
Then they live six days. And you start to wonder, what's going on here? Why is this stuff happening? Well, back in 2008, in a little French town, uh, the word got out that the, the town was getting filled up with, with a, lot of, a lot of cars and a lot of people. And they were running out of space. And they found out that especially they were running out of space at the cemetery. There was no more area to put a plot of, of someone who deceased in this cemetery. And so they tried to figure out what to do. And the mayor came up with an edict. And here's what the edict said. All persons having a plot in the cemetery and wishing to be buried are forbidden from dying. <laughs> Offenders will be severely punished. Now, everyone knew that was ridiculous. You can't stop someone, stop someone from dying. Or can you? In John chapter 11, a woman by the name of Mary and a woman by the name of Martha, sisters and their brother Lazarus. And the chapter starts off very serious. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. Now that's not really a great way to win a good novel award, is it? Start off with a man sick. And it goes on to say this. Now they were from Bethany, which is about probably a good day's walk from Jerusalem where Jesus is. And Mary and Martha were there. And, and their brother Lazarus now lay sick. Now, this was the Mary who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet. She was the same, this was the same Martha that was scurrying about her house. This was the same Mary that sat at Jesus' feet. So that's the context. And their brother is very, very ill. It doesn't tell us who that is. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. They don't even mention the name. They don't even mention the name of Lazarus. They say, the one you love is sick. So if Lazarus had a bumper sticker, it would say, hashtag Jesus loves me. I mean, there, this is an amazing story. Here's a guy that's loved by Jesus. But it's going to become very obvious in a couple minutes. If you've never read the story, he's going to die. Lazarus will die. In fact, in verse 17, Jesus shows up. Let me read that to you. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been dead in the tomb for four days. Now, uh, Josephus, the historian, said that if you were a poor Jewish person, you would be, your body would be taken, wrapped up in cloth, and thrown in a hole, and then buried. But if you were wealthy, your body was buried in a cave, in a tomb. So it's obvious that Lazarus comes from some family with great means. So he's buried in a tomb, and Lazarus doesn't show up Right. Jesus does not show up for how many days? All right. So Mary and Martha are really upset about this. Really upset about it. In fact, one of the passages says this. And when Martha went out to greet Jesus, Mary stayed at home. Anybody got an idea why she's at home? She's mad. She's mad. And when they see him, they dig it in. Four days. Now, the Jewish tradition said this. After three days, you're pretty dead. After four days, you're dead, dead, dead. The spirit leaves and is gone. So Mary and Martha, they're upset. And they're sticking it to Jesus. Not one day, not two days, not three days. Four days. Everybody say it with me. Ready? Four days. Ready? Ready? Four. I mean, they're digging it in, man. They're sticking the knife into Jesus. Four stinking days. And what happens at day four? It smells. 
And who guess who's got to go take care of this? Mary and Martha are not happy. They are not happy campers. Now, Jesus says this, when he heard this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory. Now catch this, because this is a brand new category. This is not a category you learn in Sunday school or small groups or church. It is for God's glory so that the son of God may be glorified through it. What is the it? It's sickness. Whoa, 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 that's a new category for me. I never thought about God having glory through someone's sickness. How's that possible? Well, Jesus gets there and he's pondering what to do. We know what he's going to do. Lazarus, by the way, has never read this story. (laughs) He doesn't know what's gonna happen. He doesn't know that one, he's gonna die. Two, he's gonna be resurrected from the dead. And by the way, within 20, 30 years, he's gonna die again. And guess what? He's gonna be resurrected. So someday when you get to heaven and you're roaming around, you know, it's just heaven's going to be enormous. You meet this guy, dude, what's your name? Lazarus. Hmm. Were you the same? Yeah, 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 yeah. You, you, you died. Yeah. Rose. Yeah. Yeah. Died again. Yeah. Rose again. Yeah. Rose. Yeah. Wow. Not too shabby of a story. Mary though and Martha are not happy. And they ask two questions. Now, I don't know. Do we have any girls in the house that have sisters? If you're a girl and you have a sister, put your hand up. Okay, do you guys talk? Yeah, sisters talk. Sisters definitely talk. And what do these sisters talk about? I'll tell you what they talk about. Jesus, if you had been here, this would not have happened. They're mad. Four days. What's what's Jesus doing this so time-consuming, he can't come earlier. Why couldn't he stop that? In fact, the Jewish leaders even said in verse 37, he who gave sight to the blind, if he had gotten here, he could have stopped it. And Mary doesn't go out of the house because she's ticked off, she's mad. You ever been mad at God? I have been. I bet you have been too. Maybe just haven't admitted it because it doesn't sound very Christian. doesn't sound very cool time that I can recognize that I was really mad was back in um, 2000. See, my wife and I uh, had, had one child, Rachel, and Rachel was um, a great kid, she still is a great kid. She's 33, she lives in Texas. And so we wanted to have a couple kids, maybe two or three, and we were told by a, a specialist, a fertility specialist, we probably would only have one. And so we had one and we continued to practice and have fun and do what couples do. And, and so we wanted more children, but we couldn't get pregnant. And so uh, it's been like 10 years and then 12 years and then 15 years. And then in 1999, uh, I'm actually at a gym at, on, on the treadmill and I'm doing my treadmill thing. And my wife comes in and she goes like that. And I'm like, duh, 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 hang on. And she, she goes, come on. I said, duh, duh, hang on. And you don't tell my wife no three times. Okay. Is anyone married to someone like that? You just don't do it. You know what I'm talking about, John. Okay. You don't tell. And so I get off the treadmill and I go, what's going on? And she whispered to me, I'm pregnant. I said, excuse me. She goes, I'm pregnant. I was like, who's the daddy? Oh, oh, it's me. Oh, well, we had a great pregnancy. My wife had a great pregnancy. And then Andrew David Olshan was born on August the 9th, 2000. 
And unbeknownst to her, about, unbeknownst to all of us, about 10 hours later, we got a phone call from the specialist saying our son might have Down syndrome. And I fell apart. I didn't know what Down syndrome was. It's, it's trisomy 21. It means a child basically has an extra chromosome. We actually refer to it today as an extra chromosome of love because Andrew is awesome. Do we have a picture of Andrew? You got a picture of Andrew up there? That's my boy today. He's 16 years old. He goes to Spring Hill High School in Chapin, and he's on the Irmo High School swim team. He's an amazing swimmer. We raced yesterday. Uh, he beat me 16 times. 16 times. 16 laps. Couldn't beat him. But you know what? After he was born, I was sort of beside myself. I was really grieving, and I was mad. Like, God, how could you let this happen? And, and, and kids with Downs are, are awesome, but there's different levels of severity, and some talk and some don't, some walk and some don't, and there's all different kinds, and he's highly functioning. But it was in that first month, I probably cried with Rhonda. We probably cried 30 to 40 times. And I'm still, I'm grieving, but I'm mad. And so my wife said one day, Andrew was about six weeks old, and she said, let's go to the mall. Uh, Group confession moment. Um, I don't like malls, okay? Anybody, anybody with me? God bless all 14 of you. Thank you. I'm not a mall guy, but my wife is a mall girl. And guess what, guys? You do things for love. So you, my wife says, let's go to the mall. Sure, let's go to the mall. So we're there, and uh, we're strolling Andrew, and I get to uh, I, recognize, recognize, rec, I recognize that I need to go to the bathroom. So I was like, excuse me, honey, take care of Andrew. I'm gonna go to the bathroom. So I go into the men's room and I'm doing my thing. And this guy pulls next to me in a wheelchair and he's just staring at himself in the mirror. And I look over to him and I said, are you okay? And as he started to talk, I kind of figured out quickly he had had a stroke or something. And I said, are you okay? And he goes, I'm okay. And I said, uh, what's going on? He said, I need help. Said, what kind of help do you need? He said, uh, I, I pooped in my pants. Really? And I said, oh, oh God, no. You're not, no, no, you're not asking me to do, uh-uh. And I'm kind of looking around, making sure no one's coming in the bathroom. And finally he says to me, uh, his wife's outside. He said, um, just pull my pants up. So I kind of look around, make sure no one's coming. So I just yank his pants up and said goodbye. And I walked out. As I started to walk into the, throughout the mall, I find, find Rhonda and Andrew. And I just started, I teams, tears just started to stream down my face. She was like, wow, what happened to you? I said, I met this man with a disability. And five years ago, I would have seen him, but would have ignored him. But because of Andrew David Oshine, I saw this guy. Does that make sense? I wouldn't have seen him. I would have seen him, but I would have ignored him. But now I see him, and now I see kids and adults with disabilities all over the place. I can't ignore him anymore because now I've got eyes to see. And I think that has something to do with what Jesus is talking about in this passage where he says, and, and we do this and we believe this, that the kingdom of God and the glory of Christ be expressed. I think the glory of God and the, the fulfillment of Christ and the glorification of him sort of happens when we get our eyes off ourselves and we start to see something bigger, that there's a bigger picture going on here. Does that make sense? 
And so Mary and Martha, they're frustrated and they're angry, which leads me to three myths this morning, three falsehoods. Number one, if God is silent, he must be absent. If God is silent, he must be absent. Remember this phrase over and over again. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha says, if you had been here, my brother would not have. God, surely you can prevent this death. We all think that. God's all powerful, all knowing, omnipotent, omnipresent. God can do anything, right? Right. And why doesn't he? We assume this. That if God seems to be a little, little, little bit silent, he must not be there. That's how C.S. Lewis, the great writer, felt. When he lost his wife to cancer, he said, Meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you're happy, so happy you have no sense of needing him, you will be, or so it feels, welcome and open arms. But you go to Christ or you go to God when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And after that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more empathetic, emphatic the silence has become. We assume that because God seems to be quiet that he's not there. But nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, in the book of Genesis, Jacob has this experience and he comes through it and he says these words. It's some of my favorite words in the whole Bible. Surely the presence of the Lord was in this place and I was unaware of it. That means that God can be there and we can't even sense it, smell it. God can be there and we can be totally unaware of it. Falsehood number two, our answers to suffering is emotionally satisfying. Jesus goes on to say this, hey, your brother, he's going to rise again. And Mary and Martha says, I know he's going to rise in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. You're talking future. I'm talking present. You're talking years from now. I'm talking right now. I'm going to raise him from the dead. So when people hurt and when people grieve, whether it's a, whether it's a death or a loss Maybe it's a loss of a job. Maybe it's a loss of a marriage. Whatever the loss is, it's painful to that person. And I'll tell you why this is a falsehood. I'll tell you why this is a myth. Because most of our pat answers are logical. And their pain is emotional. And the two don't connect. They disconnect. There's a miss. So when someone loses someone, we, ah, oh, they're in a better place, or you'll be okay in five years, or you'll understand this in 10 years, and we give all this logic, and the person isn't at logic, they're right here, they're in heart. Are you tracking with me? So the per- are you tracking with me? So the person that's hurting, they're emotional, but our little pat answers, it's all, what we're doing is we're giving them logic, and it doesn't, doesn't connect with them. In fact, there's a scripture in the book of Job, where the Bible says that three men came to Job and Job had lost everything. He lost his children. He lost his livestock. He lost his property. He lost everything. In fact, his wife said, go on and curse God, die. Blame God. It's easy to do the blame game, isn't it? Just blame God. And the Bible says this, 
three guys came up to him and they noticed his pain. And the Bible says they all sat down with him for seven days and mourned with him. They didn't say one word, not one stinking word. Why? Because they said he was in such pain, he couldn't handle it. By the way, when Job's friends start talking later in the book of Job, that's when they get in trouble. And that's when Job gets most miserable. Have you ever found that out to be true? That no matter what people are going through, no matter what I say to them, no matter what comfort I try to give them, no matter how many Bible verses I I throw on them, it just usually doesn't connect. Because all they want from us is to sit with them. It's called sitting shiva. It means I will grieve with you. If you're sitting down, I'm going to sit down. If you're standing up, I'm going to sit down. And whatever you're going through, I'm going to try and enter into your world. I'm going to try to enter into that. But most of our pat answers, they're not satisfying, are they? And we tell them, oh, you're in a better place or you'll feel better in a few weeks. Stop. <laughs> Just be with the person. Just be present with them. Just give them a hug. Falsehood number three, God doesn't want us to wrestle with questions. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. A lot of times Christians are taught falsely. Don't ask questions. Don't have questions for God. Don't don't inquire. Nothing could be further from the truth, men and women. In fact, I would say this, a faith without asking questions is not a really good faith at all. In fact, I would say this, a deep faith is a faith that asks hard questions and a shallow faith doesn't really want to question at all. Oh, just believe, just believe, just believe. No. Seekers want to know why. Ask questions. Denzel Washington recently got an award for his acting capabilities and he said this, ease is the greatest threat Ease is the greatest threat to hardship and progress. Ease. In other words, we want everything easy. And then when life gets complicated and life gets messy, the Christians start thinking, oh, can't ask God any questions. Shouldn't, shouldn't. No, it's okay. Because sometimes there are no easy answers that will take your pain away. So how do we respond to all this? Biblically, what is the application here? And let me suggest three. Number one, If you are a Christ follower or you're not a Christ follower, if you're a person of faith or you're not a person of faith, I still think this will help you. Number one, allow for mystery. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this, one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament. It says this, the secret things belong to the Lord. The secret things, in other words, God's got this little cupboard that's got things that only God knows about, that nobody else knows about or understands or will ever be able to comprehend. The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that are true in the word of God, the things that are in the law will stand forever. And I believe that so much that what most of the things we can know about God are found in this book, the word of God, the Bible. I believe that. But I also believe that there's things in the Bible I will never quite understand or you. The secret things belong to the Lord. And I, I tell people this all the time. If you put God in a little box He's going to jump out of the box. And if you have questions that you think can always be answered in five minutes, ten minutes, simple amount of time, your God's way too small. Because God is way much bigger than that. Amen? He's way much bigger than that. 
I don't know about you, I love movies. And my favorite movies have really simple, classic endings. And don't you hate the movies that you don't know what's gonna, what happened, it just kind of lets you hang? That's mystery. And I believe that if you will allow yourself to believe just for a few minutes today, it's okay to have mystery. It's okay to have mystery about this book. It's okay to have mystery about God. And that I can't always have everything neatly in a box, sweet, smoothing Christian ending. Sometimes it just has mystery. So people say to me, oh, Shine, why did this happen? And I give them the greatest theological answer ever. I just don't Help me out. I just don't know. Allow for mystery. Number two, Jesus hurts with us. If you were raised in the church, you learned this was your first Bible memory verse. Help me out, ready? John eleven thirty five. ready? Jesus, yeah. What's the context here? He's crying because he just lost a friend. Because Jesus knows Every human being is going to have pain. And this bothered him. This hurt him. In verse 33, it says it deeply moved him. In verse 38, it says it deeply moved and troubled him. And then he cried. Remember, Lazarus' story is a story for us also of hope. That Jesus says, I am the resurrection. There's a great day coming. But meanwhile, we live in the meanwhile. We believe we We're between Jesus' resurrection and the next resurrection, and there's going to be some hurt and some pain. God's saying this, I'm not too big that I don't hurt for you. I'm not too big that I can't cry. I'm not too big that I don't understand your pain. In fact, I understand it so much that someday they're going to put me on a cross, a Roman gibbet, and they're going to hang me there. I'm going to suffocate. I'm going to die. But three days later, can't keep a good man down. He's going to rise from the dead. Jesus hurts. And if you're hurting today, he's hurting with you. And if you're bleeding today, he's bleeding with you. Lazarus, come out. There's a kind of a preacher joke that says if he hadn't used the word name Lazarus, that all the tombs would have opened up. I guess you had to be there. But uh, <laughs> Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. His hands and his feet were wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said, take off the grave cloth and let him go. Number three. And finally, number three. What do you do when God doesn't show up? You pray and you trust for the glory of God. You pray and trust for the glory of God. Several times Jesus says this. Didn't I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Did I not tell you that? Jesus is saying, I have power over death. I have power to give life. I am the resurrection and the life. But if you will believe, and that word believe is not mental, it's heart. It's if you trust, you lean on me. The glory of God will happen. Now, John Piper says The glory of God defined is the infinite beauty and greatness of his manifold perfections. I don't have a clue what that means. (laughs) I think what it means 
when you start doing things for God's fame, when you start doing things for God's purpose, when you start to believe that there's a greater purpose than just you, when you start to be able to see things in a new way, God gets glory. When you start whine, stop whining eventually and start blaming and you start taking responsibility and start looking to him, I believe God starts to get the glory. But it's not easy. In fact, Paul, the apostle, the most famous Christian of all time, had some kind of physical problem most likely. And three times he asked God, God, take it away. Take it away. Take it away. And three times Jesus said to him, the resurrected Jesus said, No. My grace, help me out, is sufficient for you. So I don't like that answer. <laughs> I know. My grace and power is sufficient for you. If you believe, you will see the glory of God. In 1871, Horatio Spafford, a Presbyterian elder, a very wealthy man, lived during the time of the fires of Chicago, which destroyed everything, all his money, all his property, all his investments. And his family was grieving. But then he got back up on his feet, started to make some money. He said to his family, Anna and their four children, let's go on a, let's go on a vacation, let's go on a cruise. So they went to Europe. And Spafford could not go immediately. He said, I'll be there in three days. He's got some work to do. So his wife, Anna, and four children got on the boat, went, across, went, on, went, to the, went towards Europe, and they were hit, rammed by another ship. And within 12 minutes, hundreds of people died, including the four children. He got a message from his wife, and this was her message, scribbled out here. See at the top. Saved alone, what shall I do? Spafford got immediately over there. And the captain of that ship took him to where his children drowned. And with his deep sadness and deep grief and deep hurt, God gave him a song. It is well, it is well with my soul. And we sing it today. And we've sung it for years and years and years. And I don't know what you're going through today. I don't know the sadness you've had or the sadness that you all have. But this I know. If you believe, trust, lean, hug, rely on, pray, you will eventually see the glory of God.